Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboard and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Jace Lington. During the debates about the Constitution in 1788, James Madison wrote that the legislature was constantly expanding the scope of its activities, drawing all power into its impetuous vortex. To be sure, Congress today seems at least peripherally involved in most questions of daily life, but I'm not sure anyone is worried that Congress is running roughshod over the president and the courts. Today, we're joined by Phil Wallach, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies America's separation of powers with a focus on regulatory policy issues and the relationship between Congress and the administrative state. In his new book, Why Congress, he argues that having a representative, deliberative legislature is an indispensable pillar of our constitutional system, and that there's hope for Congress to play that role today. Phil, welcome to Gray Matters. Great to be with you. So what made you want to write about Congress? Well, as as your listeners heard from, from my bio, I'm not sort of a lifelong Congress scholar. I'm somebody who thinks about the policymaking process pretty broadly and, and sort of about how the separation of power system is working in America. Uh, and over time, that sort of led me toward Congress because I started to feel that Congress is sort of the shaky leg of the stool. Uh, and that if we want to get our system working better on the whole and, and producing policy that people accept as legitimate more often, uh, that's going to mostly take uh, resuscitating Congress in some way, shape, or form. Uh, the, I think there's a sense that Congress has left a, a little bit of a vacuum by by sort of receding from lots of different areas of policymaking where, where we face some hard questions and that the administrative state and the courts rush in in the end to f- fill that vacuum. And uh, I think that's a very dangerous development. And so I think to address it, we have to, f- we have to focus on how can we make Congress better. And a theme that runs throughout the book is that Congress is the best place to work through those difficult policy decisions because of the diversity of interests across our nation. Absolutely, yeah. So con- Congress, by nature of, of being a plural body, uh, can can deal with, you know, the many factions of our extended republic, as Madison had it, right? And, you know, there are, there are attempts to recreate ways of dealing with that plur- plurality within the executive branch, right? You can think of the notice and comment rulemaking process as kind of a substitute deliberative process but i've just never i've never bought into the idea that it's anything like an adequate substitute it's it's so sanitized and um managed compared to the 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 potential for what free-flowing congressional debate ought to be it seemed like towards the end of the book you were almost advocating for more fighting in congress wanting to get more of those issues out in the open yeah, absolutely. A Congress that works better is not a place where everyone holds hands and sings kumbaya. Quite the opposite. It's a place where vigorous arguments take place. And, and nevertheless, people feel that once they've had their arguments, they have to work out accommodations with each other. That doesn't mean coming to agree on everything by any means, but it means dealing with the people who are there uh, with, with you engaged in the work of solving the American people's problems. I thought your 
historical account of the debate around the Civil Rights Act of 1964 really made that point well. Can you give us a brief overview of how those themes came out in that story? Sure. So an awful lot of people look back on on that and think, well, Congress had a hard time doing anything on civil rights. Finally, Kennedy gets assassinated and Lyndon Johnson comes in, sort of understands the possibilities of the historical moment. And he, as, as the president, pushes it through uh, you know, it's sort of a, a story of Martin Luther King and the and the movement teeing it up and Johnson bringing it home. And that's just not a very good, accurate retelling of the history. Congress really was the one to push these issues forward, certainly because of the movement having created some outside pressure. But there was a lot of competition between the two parties in Congress on who will be the party of civil rights. And the key thing that I argue in the chapter is that having to get something through Congress created this really healthy dynamic of having to broaden the coalition, of having to bring in people who were kind of lukewarm on these issues and make them fairly enthusiastic supporters of, of what was ultimately, you know, a very deep-reaching social change to be legislated from, from, from Washington. And so you saw, because of the need to assemble the supermajority coalition and ultimately break the Southern filibuster, you saw a huge church outreach effort in 1963 and 1964 that ultimately brought along pretty much all conservative Midwesterners, um, which who were a group that didn't think of themselves as having that much of a direct stake in these issues, but ultimately was willing to get behind seeing it as 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 a moral imperative and so to my mind working things through the congressional process really let us arrive at a law that had a huge broad coalition in support of it that meant that the law would endure you know beyond any changes in political control it meant that the losing party felt that they had been given their chances and would accept the outcome, even though they disagreed with the law. So to my mind, the working the process of, of Congress really was central to making the Civil Rights Act of 1964 effective in a way that, say, Brown versus Board of Education had, had not been. Um, and yeah, I, I don't think that any of the other branches can substitute for, that, for, for the, the meaningfulness of that process. Yeah. Can you say a little more about that? Specifically, uh, Richard Russell's acceptance of his defeat and how losing gracefully let the policy endure in a way that you mentioned later, the DACA program is still so contentious exactly. because it didn't go through Congress. Right. Yeah. So when we look at the Southerners, you know, who had so much entrenched power in Congress because seniority in that era was sacrosanct and they all held their seats for a long, long time. So the Southerners had an outsized influence in Congress. There's no doubt about that. And they definitely stopped ambitious civil rights legislation from moving when probably a bare majority would have supported it. So some people want to just look at those facts and say, you know, Congress was a part of the problem here. But to me, when I look at this story, Richard Russell in particular was considered sort of the consummate senator. He was a, a man of great renown in, in his in his work on foreign affairs. And he was an important sort of senior leader within the Democratic Party, even though he could never be the national leader because he was the Southern leader. But he found ways of working with these Northern liberals who were part of the same party as he was 
even though they were at, at direct odds with each other on uh, on this seminal issue of the day. And so I, I don't want to too much paint Russell as, as, as a hero, but, uh, you know, certainly his racial views just seem abhorrent to us at, at this remove. Uh, but I think they were deeply and sincerely held. He truly thought that he was trying to do what was right for the country. And he accepted that he could only work the process uh, and, and that there was... It would, it would be totally unacceptable for him to condemn the process just because he didn't like the result of it. So when the law actually passes, he goes and says to his constituents, I don't like this law. I will work to change this law. This is the law of the land and we must follow it. And um, that's just so different from what we're used to today. I, I feel like the natural impulse today is, well, if the other side wins, I'm going to say why why they were cheating and why what they did has to be disregarded or overturned in the courts or, or whatever. I think, I think, you know, Russell then continued to be a respected and powerful member of that democratic coalition after he had been the loser on these issues. And so the Southerners managed to reconcile themselves to this, even though they didn't like it. And, and to me, that's just a hugely important lesson that we, um, we, don't, we don't appreciate the extent to which the legislative process offers us the prospect of social peace. That's, that's something we often take for granted in American history, um, and, and we shouldn't. Thanks for walking through that. Richard Russell's at the top of my mind because last week I saw Representative Al Green give a speech in the House about renaming the old Senate office building. And it's odd timing that I'm reading your book right after having heard that speech, because I didn't know any of that background about Richard Russell and the Civil Rights Act. What do you think about the call to rename the building and why uh, so, change yeah, the moral conditions? Um, my friend James Walner and I actually wrote a piece about this once that was in Law and Liberty. Which you, it's, it's a good piece. You should look it up. Basically, we say, if you want to rename the building for somebody else, that that may be fine and good. We may want to honor somebody who doesn't have this segregationist past. Fine. But don't think that Russell has his name on the building because of his segregationist, you know, views. It's quite quite the opposite. At, at the moment that he died and the building was named for him shortly thereafter, those those views were already in disrepute. But there was a sense that he was a truly great institutionalist. He was somebody who elevated the Congress and uh, who, who treated his colleagues with the utmost respect and helped help them learn respect for the institution. And, you know, there's all sorts of things that, uh, you know, if you see him as just a racist, you're really um, missing out on why he was such a historically important figure. I mean, he's the, he's the father of the food stamp program, among other things, sort of uh, interesting log roll between agricultural interests and and urban interests that that led us to have that. So he he was a he was the consummate legislator, and that's why his name is on the building. Um, and so if we're going to take his name off the building, at least at least sort of in a good Chesterton's fence kind of way, know know what it's there for in the first place. Thank you for walking me through that. I didn't know that background. Can can I can I go back? You also asked about how civil rights and immigration in the present day differ, and I'd like to add a point on that, which is, you know, when we look at the immigration debate today, you did have a sense of pressure building for these dreamers, right? These mm -hmm. people who were brought to the country as young people, 
and and consign you know by their parents most most often to this you know live in this legal gray zone so they're very sympathetic figures there was a sense that an awful lot of bipartisan momentum was behind trying to reform immigration in large part on their on their behalf but then all that energy gets channeled into an executive branch program takes all the momentum out of the legislative process and we haven't really seen the immigration movement try to build this huge overwhelming coalition in the way that the civil rights movement did we you know part of that is understanding the work of persuasion as being willing to meet people where they are instead of uh condemning them as as backward right there, there, you have to you have to be accepting of the fact that to build a really big coalition you're going to have to bring in some people who think very differently from you you're not necessarily going to have to change everything they think you just have to bring them along such that they find some some solution that you're offering appealing and that's where we've really seen a, a lack of follow-through on immigration it does seem like there ought to be this broad coalition sort of out there but the activist groups sort of like various kinds of service through executive branch policies rather than building that broad movement and and, and getting the big big law passed uh, that we would probably need to do it so to me that's a very instructive and disheartening contrast sure well and another policy it brings to mind is there's a lot of uh pressure mostly on the left but still broad-based pressure to enact some kind of gun control legislation at the federal level and there was debate during the trump administration about banning bump stocks after that shooting in las vegas and there was even, I think it was Diane Feinstein had some legislation to do that. And then it didn't go anywhere because the ATF did it unilaterally. And then I don't think anything much has passed through Congress since then. Well, they actually did pass a gun control bill in the 117th Congress. Um, that, that was part of, it came out of a Senate compromise. So that was one of these cases where I thought the first couple of years of the Biden administration had some some decent coalition building mostly mostly started in the senate so we haven't gotten nothing but um but certainly yeah it's been a hard one that's a hard one to build the broad coalition on there because you're sort of most intense the people who feel most passionately about the issue may be a minority but they it really ranks very high for them and so you get elected officials catering their opinions to those activist groups on, on both sides rather than rather than sort of gravitating toward the compromise position most often. I think, unfortunately, all these mass shootings create moments where you can reshuffle that basic political dynamic to some extent, which is what I, I think led to the passage of, of the law in 2021 or 2022, whichever it was. Okay. And you mentioning compromise reminds me, I need to ask you about the difference between working from consensus and working through compromise. Why would compromise be preferable? Yeah, I've never really understood anyone who, who thinks that we can do consensus policymaking in the, in the United States. Um, there's an awful lot of cantankerous people involved in, in policymaking, which is only fair because there's an awful lot of cantankerous Americans out there. So the idea that we're going to do anything by consensus seems a little far-fetched. But a compromise is, is a different sort of ideal where you say, all right, we're not going to get everyone on board, 
And we're not all going to think the same way. But when we deal with particulars, here's something we can agree on enough. And I, I my thinking was, I, I would have to say, helpfully influenced by a Cass Sunstein article from the 1980s, I think it is, called Incompletely Theorized Agreements. I think it's a, it's it's not the most original piece, but it's it's really well argued. And the sense that so much of our collective life together is enabled by our willingness to do things without agreeing on the fundamentals. I think some people of a philosophical bent have a sense, well, if we don't start from fundamentals and build up from there, then we're going to just, everything's going to be built on a house of sand and we can't do anything. But that's that's not really how real world social activity happens. I think we're, we're, we're willing to overlook differences we're willing to deceive ourselves to a certain extent about about other people agreeing with more of our underlying beliefs than they than they may actually do and all that allows us to to get along and uh, again i just think getting along has been an, uh, an underrated value when when we think about what it is we're prioritizing i think economists don't tend to value it highly enough they tend to take it for granted um and and as I guess Americans, you know, we haven't we haven't we've had a lot of underlying social consensus for for much of our history, which has sort of allowed us to ignore these issues. But I think we feel the strain of our differences today quite acutely, and and so that's why thinking about social peace as a value makes a lot of sense to me. I agree, and I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't note that, as your acknowledgments point out, that. Chapter 5 grew out of a working paper that you developed as part of a roundtable at the Gray Center. Has renewed conservative interest in restoring Congress changed your opinion of how they reacted in the 80s and 90s? Or how are you thinking about the conservative perspective on Congress these days? Well, I think conservative opinion is is somewhat schizophrenic, to be honest. And I, I, I see an awful lot of energy on the conservative side just focused on the figure of the president. And I, I think there are an awful lot of folks who think somehow top-down conversion is is the only path toward more conservative policy, and, and it's attractive to them for that reason. And I think that's a dangerous way to go. I think, I think they're sort of working out of Woodrow Wilson's playbook more than they realize when they think in those terms. And I think that they need to get back to sort of a little c conservative appreciation for Congress as sort of the earthier branch of government. Um, I think it's going to take some work to get Congress to live up to that description, maybe. But um, but I think by virtue of the way it's, the way it's built, it, it ought to serve that function. So, yeah, I think, look, when, when a lot of people in 2016 thought Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president, you saw a surge of conservative interest in thinking about restoring Congress and getting Congress to throw its weight around more vis-a-vis -vis the executive branch. And then Trump came in and, and really scrambled that dynamic quite a lot. And so a lot of good ideas that sort of were percolating in 2016 got some amount of lip service during the Trump years, but I have sort of felt that they haven't had a lot of follow through. Um, and I think it's important to just get conservatives to realize that a well-functioning legislature is good for conservative values, is good for self-government. Uh, 
and, and needs to be respected for that reason. I, and it's, it's sort of a messier way to advance our advanced conservative priorities rather than imagining that you're going to get your guy in, in the Oval Office and everything's going to be better. But I, th- I think that that's a I think that that's a fairy tale. Even if you get a much more skilled operator in there, I think I think still the power of the presidency isn't ever going to live up to people's wildest dreams of it. When I thought your treatment of World War II specifically brought out that theme. So can you go over kind of the lessons that Congress's history during World War II can teach us about how they might oversee administrative agencies? Yeah. So I think most people, when they think of Congress during World War II, probably just don't think of anything, right? It's not something that people have thought about much. And my argument is that Congress did a played an extremely important role in sort of figuring out how to share the burdens of the war, how to make people feel like we were tackling these huge challenges in a way that was basically fair. There was members of Congress were hugely preoccupied with making sure there was no war profiteering, uh, which is something Americans after World War I had been deeply troubled by. And in general, Congress, yeah, it was much closer to the people and figuring out how they could be brought along to support the war. Because I think the president had a sense of the righteousness of this mission and its importance. And, you know, that's very obvious to us in retrospect. But to Americans who remembered how futile the First World War had felt and who felt like this fighting in Europe was a long way from them, it wasn't always so easy for them to accept that this was worth sacrificing for. And so Congress transmitted their concerns up to Washington, and that allowed us to figure out a way of of getting through this together. It wasn't the president's way always, especially after 1942. The the midterms in that year were very favorable to conservatives, sort of a working conservative majority in Congress, even though Democrats, of course, remained the majority party. Conservatives did a lot to check Roosevelt's ambitions um, and you know on tax policy they overrode his veto and they did they did a lot to sort of make sure that the war effort was laser focused on victory and not on transforming American society uh, which was a temptation that that the White House sometimes indulged in and you mentioned they didn't micromanage the military which yes. brings me to my next question which you touch on later in the book that we can't expect generalist legislators to make every policy choice. Yeah. And so I'm thinking about that in the context of conservative critics of the administrative state saying that legitimate government can only come from Congress making policy decisions. But at the same time, back even as far as Wayman v. Southern, people recognize that the legislature has to make the important decisions, but can leave to others the responsibility to fill up the details. Where do you see that balance? Right. So I think it's I think it's very important not to go the whole whole hog on the non-delegation route as as somebody like David Schoenbrod does. And I've I've learned an awful lot from him, but I, I think in the end I've decided that he goes a little too far with this idea that everything has to come from Congress. I don't think Congress wants that job. <laughs> and and I think realistically it's a lot to ask from them. And I think the American people don't really care if Congress takes on that job in exactly those ways. And so it's hard to generate a constituency for that idea that Congress needs to do everything. It, it's sort of 
even if you think it's a good idea, it's, it's hard to know how you generate the momentum for it. I think it's a lot easier to say Congress needs to set the direction on the really big questions, because if we don't have Congress do that, it falls to the executive branch. We have this seesawing, whipsawing problem where every time we change who's in charge of the White House, we flip back and forth. We have litigation over everything instead of just having it be clear what the law wants. So we, we do need to focus on getting Congress to take up the big questions and give us answers. And to me, saying that they have to do everything makes the perfect the enemy of the good. Sure. And that makes sense. Might it be easier for generalist legislators to make more of those big decisions if they had fewer big decisions to make? So if we go back to a Federalist 45 sense of few and defined federal powers versus the states taking a more prominent role in certain policy making that affects everybody's daily lives? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but good luck with that one. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think to the extent that we could make the American federal government more narrow and more focused, we would have much better hope for for working through the difficulties of that agenda and for getting better governance. You know, I, unfortunately, it just seems like we have, uh, you know, more than a century of history suggesting that the organic pressure to ever expand is, is very strong. And, you know, I think, as, as you can see in sort of a lot of the internal debates of the Republican Party today, even among folks who think of themselves as squarely on the right, the temptation to think, well, government is big, how can the big government do my things instead of the other guy's things is very, very strong indeed. And so I, I think it would be easier with a smaller and more focused set of priorities. But even supposing we stay as broad as things are today, I think you can still push push the idea that the big the biggest decisions, the biggest directional questions have have to be sent to the legislature. Okay. And we've seen some movement on those grounds. You mentioned that the RAINS Act had been passed out of the House, at least since 2010, a few times. And just in the last couple of weeks, it's passed again from the House and it was part of the debt ceiling negotiations. Do you think that has a better chance of restoring some of that legislative primacy more than the Congressional Review Act? I think you called it a poor man's legislative veto. So the RAINS Act would, would definitely redistribute power very importantly toward the legislature. But I have to say that I've, I'm not bullish on the prospects of ever getting the RAINS Act passed into law, because it's just been branded so thoroughly as a Republican vehicle to, to cripple the administrative state. You know, I don't know how fair that is, that there are some things that make me think that that is, that, that that's not without some justice. Um, but I think that you could repackage some of the same ideas in a framework that says this is a constitutional reform that's meant to rebalance power toward this institution. It's not meant to just cripple right, the regulatory state. And I think if you did that, you would have a chance of building a bipartisan coalition that could push it across the line. Um, I'm not sure going back to using the reins moniker at this point is the best way of doing that. Um, so yeah, I think there are there has been a bit of interest in recent years of of how you could have some executive branch action subject to automatic quick sunsets, absent congressional action to to lock to lock the rule into place uh, on a more permanent basis. I think those 
circumvent the INS Vichada kind of presentment mm-hmm. concerns. And we should we should be pursuing those and trying to package them as a revival of, of, a, of a real robust form of the legislative veto that it was something that had very robust bipartisan support back in the 1970s uh, until it ran into the Supreme Court knocking it out. And I think that has better prospects for success than, than just saying, go back to the RAINS program once again. I think RAINS asks Congress to vote on too many things, incidentally. Like, I think not every significant rule really rises to the level of truly momentous question that needs to come to Congress. And that was part of the debate over the most recent version that passed was what the threshold should be. Should it be the $100 million major rule threshold or should it be a billion dollars? And that was some of the Democratic critiques. Aside from saying that Congress doesn't have the expertise to second guess the administrative state, they were saying that it would take up way too much floor time to have to vote on everything. Yeah, and I think think that's a fair critique. There was one thing you mentioned, it was in another chapter, um, and I had never heard of it before, the Congressional Responsibility Act and something like the prospective approval of new major rules. Would that be maybe a better solution or more of what you're talking about? Yeah, that's a David Schoenbrod thing. And I learned learned about that, the story of that from, from, from him. Um, it was something that Congress considered in the 104th Congress, you know, and un- unfortunately, this Congressional Review Act is what won out. I, and I just, you know, I think that people are excited about the Congressional Review Act now that it's been getting a lot of action, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fundamental shortcoming of it, which is that the president can veto these joint resolutions. And as such, it takes a very special sort of political configuration to create a situation where the CRA can actually be effective. You could build things differently such that that wasn't the dynamic. And that's what the Congressional Responsibility Act would have done. But it, that, that, you know, it never, it never got so close to passing or anything, but it was something that got some consideration in, in committee and Congress back in the mid nineties. And like I said, I think, I think there's been some movement on trade policy stuff here in different little niches. You see, renewed interest in these kind of veto mechanisms. And I, so I, I do, I am hopeful that there's some momentum there. And then turning from the relationship between Congress and the executive branch to the judiciary, what would the relationship be now that we have a newly reinvigorated major questions doctrine, if the House passes something like the Separation of Powers Restoration Act requiring de novo review of agency interpretations of statutes, would that put Congress back in the driver's seat, or would you see that as empowering courts? I mean, listen, the problem is Congress always can be in the driver's seat if it wants to be, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I think the question is whether any of these doctrinal changes can force it to do this work, even if it doesn't really want to. And I have to say, I'm I'm much less hopeful that that, that can really work out. I think you have to get them to want it. I think that's what le- what's lacking is the will. I, th- I find it to be a, like a pretty elaborate bank shot to think that if we knock out Chevron deference, then suddenly there's going to be a groundswell of grassroots pressure for Congress to become a more active, more responsible legislator. I, th- I think that they can still punt and abdicate quite a lot, and courts can find themselves 
with the same dilemma whether they say they have this doctrine in place or not, right? It, it's not like there was no sh- there was no deference before Chevron, and it's right. not even if even if courts are instructed not to give any deference. Sort of, there are all sorts of structural reasons why you can imagine why they still would. Um, sure. So I, I think I think at the end of the day, the trick is to get Congress to understand the appeal of of stepping up and being legislators. I don't know how much these doctrinal changes will actually do that, unfortunately. Well, I had to ask. <laughs> Critics of Congress often talk about the Senate filibuster as being one of the main reasons nothing can get done, even that does have broad support. And you do a great job in the book of talking about the dual tracking system where it used to be that a filibuster would stop all business and it would have to be a continuous talking thing. Whereas now, if anyone even indicates that they might filibuster, they just move on to other business. Would you want it restored to its original form or should we get rid of it or leave it as it is? What are you thinking about it now? The way it is now, it's just a supermajority requirement in the Senate on non-budgetary legislation, right? We have the budget reconciliation process that lets us push things through on a majority basis on spending questions. But, you know, I I think there's some benefits from this supermajority requirement, but that's pretty much all it is. And my point in the civil rights chapter that we talked about before is that the way the filibuster functioned back then it actually focused the nation's attention on an issue and forced resolution in a way that I thought seemed very healthy. Um, and it that came at a significant cost that did, in fact, paralyze the institution and make it so it could not do other work. And so that really focused people's minds. You had to come up with something or you had to give up. You had to decide that the people filibustering were just going to get their way. I'd like to see something like that restored today. I, I think we really need some devices that make the deliberation in Congress more meaningful and more likely to focus the nation's attention on our biggest challenges and and sort of create this sense that we have to get to a resolution. I think there's I think it's just too easy to 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 say, oh well, we gave it a try, and now the filibuster's to blame and. And that's that. And nobody's gone through the work of of arguing about this thing. And nobody's gone through the work of trying to see how the country would react to having this centered as as the one thing that we're stuck on. I'm I'm sympathetic to the people who are trying to say we need a talking filibuster. I'm not saying that would fix everything about the Senate, um, but I I think it would be very healthy. The closest analog I can think of, and I don't know if you've been following this, but uh, Senator Tommy Tuberville right now is holding up all of the what is it flag officer promotions that the Senate has to vote on. He's protesting um, a DOD policy about abortion that followed the Dobbs ruling. They made it to where the DOD will pay for service members who are stationed in a state where abortion's illegal to go and have those procedures where it is legal. And Tuberville's arguing that that violates the law, but also the legislature's prerogative in setting policy on that question. And so it's not a filibuster, but he's holding up all of these nominations that everyone would typically pass right. by voice vote. Well, this is the work that the Senate does does continue to do today, right? It is personnel, right? 
confirmations of judges and executive branch officials and uh, military promotions here. So I guess he's using he's using the leverage given given the kind of activity that they're focused on today. I guess I I sort of respect respect his willingness to to be the the, the sore thumb. You know, he is focusing some attention on this issue, but it, it's it's not actually a very healthy thing for us to feel like we have to cripple some part of our governmental process. You know, it should be a, a fairly basic ministerial sort of process in order to to get attention to an issue, right? And so I guess I wish I wish there was some other better way. And, and I'm not sure I know enough about the sort of current state of Senate parliamentary maneuvering to, to have to have a suggestion off the top of my head. But I, it's always possible for these kinds of maneuvers to backfire, right? If you ultimately convince your colleagues that you're not willing to engage constructively and, and, are, and are breaking something out of spite, uh, they may they may end up holding that against you. So I, I don't I don't know exactly what the fate of Senator Tuberville's uh, maneuver will end up being, but that's my worry. Sure. Well, and so much happens by unanimous consent, you wonder what else will break down in the future in response. Yeah. You also mentioned that it might be more important to restore regular order than to focus on the filibuster. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and why that might be preferable? Sure. So in general, we can structure both of these chambers in a lot of different ways, consistent with their constitutional position. And the Constitution gives each chamber the power to structure its own affairs, really unchecked by pretty much any external power. And right now, the members in, in the two chambers have accepted an extremely top-down model where you know partisan leaders have sort of a very tight grip of the agenda and decide what kind of things get votes and shut down a lot of the kind of freewheeling coalition building that I'm so enthusiastic about. I want pushback on that. I want to see there being more decentralized power, which in practice probably means reinvigorating committees, doing things to make sure that committees have their chance to get their legislation on the floor for consideration, whether the speaker is enthusiastic about it or not whether the Senate majority leader is enthusiastic about it or not. The promise of regular order is that you get to involve the whole membership through this delegation to committees, and that then you incentivize the people working on the committees to become genuine policy experts and really put in the time because they know that by doing so, they'll be contributing to the legislation that ultimately gets considered and possibly passed. And the problem now is you can go and work hard on a committee and there's ultimately a sense that if what you're doing doesn't fit in with this leadership's agenda, it's just going nowhere. Um, and oftentimes, the things that do get legs are the things that are assembled out of the out of the speaker's office or the majority leader's office in the first place. So, I think we need to change that basic dynamic. We need to do do more to sort of make Congress work for the workhorses instead of the show horses. And decentralizing power and, and reinvigorating committees, allowing allowing more amendment activity is also a part of regular order that, that I would consider very healthy. Again, that just lets a broader broader part of the Congress have its say and and try to shape deals that can get broad approval. 
um, I think I think that would all be very healthy, and we see we do see some movement toward that al- already underway. So I, I think it's not like this is a brand new idea or that other people aren't thinking this way. Uh, but but we still have a long way to go. I have so many more questions I want to ask you, but we're almost out of time. In the few minutes we have left, is there anything else that you would like people who are interested in separation of powers or administrative law to take away from your book that we haven't already touched on? I think the thing that I want to convey most strongly is that Republican government, as Madison explicates it, means working through our representatives in America. Our constitutional system isn't designed to be any kind of direct democracy, which draws in every single citizen into the work of making policy. There's just nothing like that. And we don't we don't need it. It would be bad. <laughs> but if we if we want to take the principle of self-government seriously, it means putting Congress front and center. And I think there's a temptation for people on the right as much as on the left to say that sounds uh, that sounds annoying. Uh, Congress is so annoying. Congress is so full of people I don't like. Let's figure out instead how to make American policymaking do what I want without congress let's figure out how to work around congress and sometimes people call that reform right they say let's reform congress and that to some people that sounds like making it work better but what it can often mean is just making it pipe down i think the main thing i want people to understand is that as inconvenient as we might find congress we really need to need to keep it front and center because it's at the heart of what free politics is in this country and to the extent that we just choose executive branch government you know where we still have little d democracy expressed through quadrennial presidential elections i'm not saying that that's all of a sudden an autocratic system you still have little d democracy but in an important way you've lost self-government and you've lost what it means to be a free self-governing people I think Congress, people are so annoyed with it in so many different ways that they forget that basic fundamental value of the place. And I just want people to go back to remembering remembering it and realizing that there really aren't any good substitutes. Um, we don't really have a we don't really have a plan B that keeps our political freedom intact. People are deluding themselves in all kinds of way into thinking that arbitrary government is going to work out well because they're going to have their people in charge. And I just don't get it. We, there's there's such a huge diversity of opinion, which another way of saying we just don't we just don't agree on things in this country. And people who somehow convince themselves that that, you know, people who think like them are are just on the cusp of being in charge of everything. I don't I don't get it. <laughs> and I don't see it as a realistic prediction. So for those of us who think that disagreement is here to stay, for the foreseeable future, Congress is a way to deal with that uh, in, in the best way possible. And uh, that's the main idea I want people to take away from this book. And you really do a great job of showing how that theme played itself out in history and how it can inform current debates. And I highly recommend every go everybody go out and buy Why Congress. Thanks for joining us today. Much. 
This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLawCenter.